Welcome to episode 108 of Frank Reactions, the podcast where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name is Tema Frank. Today, we've got part two of my interview with retail prophet Doug Stevens about his new book, Reengineering Retail. And if you missed part one, I'd really recommend that you go back and listen to it now. You can find that wherever you download podcasts or go to frankreactions.com forward slash 107. When we left off last episode, Doug was starting to talk about an interesting new company called Beta and how they're approaching retail in a completely different way from what we're used to. In today's part of our conversation, we discuss the blending of retail and technology and how the physical presence of a store is an increasingly essential element of marketing your digital presence. Doug makes the bold claim that Amazon isn't really a retailer. He turns the whole concept of retail on its head and suggests that maybe the purpose of retail stores isn't to sell products at all. Find out why he says that as you sit back now and enjoy part two of my conversation with Doug Stevens. And they focused in on, you know, like a Best Buy store, for example. Like, why is it you go to a Best Buy store, you never really see anything that's earth shattering or cool. You never see yeah. anything you didn't expect. You really can't play with products or have, you know, kind of a physical experience with products. It's very difficult. And the degree of knowledge that you find in store isn't always that great. So they said, <laughs> how, how could we change this model? So what they did was they created a store where, first of all, they bring in products that are cool. And, and, and most of them are Internet of Things products. They're connected products right. that are connected to the Internet. But, but the, the main criteria, the chief criteria is just that the stuff is really cool and interesting. They don't, they don't particularly care if it comes from a startup, if it's like a beta product, mm -hmm. if it, they don't care if it comes from uh, a Sony or a Samsung. The chief criteria is, is it really cool? Is it interesting? Would consumers be excited by it? Then what they do is they bring these products in and they curate them in almost a gallery setting where you can come in and you can literally try each and every product, everything works, everything's plugged in, mm -hmm. you could try it. But here's the, cool, here's the cool thing about this store. They don't sell the products. All they're doing is they're, they're exposing consumers to them and allowing consumers to try them. What they sell is the data coming off of those interactions. <laughs> so, so the whole store is wired. Mm -hmm. And it's wired to understand how many people are coming in, uh, the, the basic demographic makeup in aggregate of those people, where they're going, what they're interacting with, when they're communicating with, with uh, the store, uh, of what information they're requiring. They're capturing all of that information and then sending it up in real time to brands who subscribe to get that information about mm. their products. So. Here's another example of, of a, a retailer that is saying, look, the purpose of retail may not be to sell products. <laughs> wow, that's a real mind bender. Yeah. Huh. It actually sort of calls to mind two things for me. One was uh, a store in Toronto in the 1980s, I guess, where, of course, in those days, you didn't just download software. You bought it in boxes and plugged it into your computer 
and it was tough because you couldn't experiment with it beforehand to see if it would really meet your needs. And there was one store, and they were clearly ahead of their time by a couple of decades, a few decades, but they were set up so that they had computers and you would go and you would just test out whatever software you wanted. They would help you through it. And then ultimately you'd buy it. I think where they probably went wrong was, of course, they were trying to pay for it all on the basis of retail sales, but it required a lot of store space to do that. But I like your idea of sort of twisting it around and saying, okay, let's just look at selling the data and the learning. And the other thing that it called to mind for me was a business idea that I toyed with when I had young children, which was to set up a sort of a play center, but it would be a place to test new toys and give feedback to the manufacturers. So now I've just given away that idea for anyone who wants to take it. <laughs> what, that should, what that concept should be called is Toys R Us. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 that's, and that's what I mean. Brands are, brands are missing the point. The, 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 the purpose of retail is not to create an 80,000 square foot warehouse with nice lighting. Yeah, where 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 people come in and simply pick up the thing that they could have ordered online and drag it home in their car. That mm-hmm. is no longer the purpose of retail. Now, if you told me you were going to create a twenty five thousand square foot Toys R Us where kids kids literally beg their parents every day to take them because it's yeah. so much fun and they get to try things they've never tried before. Yeah, then now I'm bought in. But mm-hmm. but but you know, and and here's what here's the thing. The question is, okay, so if we agree on this, and, and there's a lot of very, very smart executives out there who get it too, mm-hmm. why is this not happening on a wide-scale basis? Yep. And the answer is because the metrics that we're using to measure productivity in retail are the same metrics we've been using since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> it's, and, 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 and I'm quite, you know, I'm, I'm sound like I'm being facetious, but it's true. The same metrics are... Sales per square foot. Yep. Comp store sales. So year on year on year comp store sales. Revenue per hour. Revenue per associate. All of those same state mm-hmm. uh, industrial metrics around retail. So here's the thing: because we measure productivity that way, very few executives are prepared to take the risk. Mm-hmm. They're they're. Very few executives are prepared to take the gamble that if they create a store that is experiential in nature, that a year from now, they're going to pay the price for it because somebody's going to look at the P&L and say, you're not making any money. Yeah. Because, the, because the way we measure sales in, in retail is archaic. We're yeah. not measuring that in a multi-channel way yet. And yet, interestingly, the examples that you give in the book, you're saying even on a sales per square foot model, they're actually doing really well. They're doing better than traditional retail. Right. As soon as, soon as you redefine sales. Okay. So as soon as you redefine revenue. So if, I, if I'm not actually dependent on moving product per square foot, but if I'm looking at the, at the knock-on revenue effect of having that awesome store that generates all this uh, consumer traffic and consumer activity and pushes consumers out across channels to buy things from me. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if I can attribute a value back to the store that generated that activity, 
that that is how we arrive at a new a new measure of productivity. But as long as I'm sitting there saying, well, okay, there were lots of people there, and and everybody had a really great time, uh, and our online sales are going up, sure, but the store on a square foot basis isn't selling much. That's, <laughs> a, a, that's an old way of looking at it, and we'll never we'll never innovate if we continue to measure productivity that way. Well, you could look at it too the way traditional advertising is measured. You know that you that essentially they look for correlations. So they've done something with an ad and they see a bump in sales. Well, you could do the same with retail stores, but I guess you, you wouldn't know which. I mean, the examples you've given in the book are sort of one-off stores. But if you had a bunch of different stores in which you were doing these promotions, you wouldn't really have any way to know which one or ones were generating those increased sales. Well, if you look at, um, you know, there are brands that I talk about in the book, like Worthy Parker yeah. uh, is one. Indochino is a Canadian brand of menswear. Uh, Bonobos, you know, brands that have have discovered that. When they open physical distribution in a marketplace, and, and again, all of these stores that I just mentioned, all three of them, the purpose of their store is not to sell product. They're, the purpose of their store is to act as media in the marketplace for their brand. But all of them agree that when they open physical distribution, their online sales in that market go up. And that's, and that's a very mm. measurable thing. That mm-hmm. is not something that you have to conjecture. You okay. know where, you know where sales in a, you know, on- online are coming from. And if the only thing you change in a market is you opened a physical store and sales <laughs> went up, yeah. there's a correlation. That makes sense. Actually, it's interesting because some of the people I've interviewed, there's a coffee shop in, in Edmonton called Transcend. They've got a couple of outlets, but they were commenting that for their online coffee and coffee related product sales as they open more physical locations their online sales go up and i think you know in their view is it's because people experience the brand absolutely so so here's the other side of the equation right now in the u.s this year eight thousand six hundred retail locations are going to close Mm mm-hmm so brands are, you know, brands are sitting down and looking at their books and they're saying, okay, well, you know, this year we have X percent of our distribution is no longer productive, quote unquote. Why? Because the sales in that location aren't comping at last year's sales or sales per square foot are down. But the problem with that, with that thesis is eventually after you've closed a certain number of stores, you disappear from consumer consciousness. Yeah. And and your online sales, all of these same brands are trying to build online businesses to compete with Amazon. So if you <laughs> just eliminate your physical presence, you're actually eliminating your online presence as well. Yeah. You know, so so it becomes self-defeating. So again, you know, we have to think about it. You know, just here, uh, you know, just to put it in clearer terms, I'll give you an example. Yesterday I was um I, I was looking for something for a boat that I have, and I I went to a retailer called West Marine, which mm-hmm. is a, an online specialty retailer. Uh, they have stores in the U.S., uh, but but they closed their stores in Canada because they weren't productive. Mm-hmm. Okay, quote unquote. Right. So closed all their physical stores in Canada. So I went online. I saw the product that I was looking for, and it was fifty four ninety nine. I went to Amazon. 
and I saw the same product for $24.99. <laughs> On my Prime membership, I was able to order the product, and I'm actually, and that was yesterday, yeah. uh, yesterday morning, and it is going to be delivered to my door today. Right. So the question is, if that's the reality that the consumer lives in, then what could or should West Marine have done to prevent that from happening? And, and you know, there are two answers, but in my opinion. First is, if they had had a store that I could have gone to and had a remarkable experience at, mm-hmm. they might have they captured my sale, even though their product was twice as expensive. Yeah. And even online, uh, the, the experience, there, there was no experience. There was no, you know, live chat where you could talk to someone and get mm-hmm. answers about your project. There was no video content for me to watch. There was, you know, there's just nothing value added. And that's the way most retailers are approaching this. Yeah. So this sort of begs the question of Amazon and its dominance and whether it will ultimately become feasible for anybody to compete against Amazon. So it's a good question, and, and here's the thing, in, in, in my opinion. I think most, of, most retailers mischaracterize what Amazon is in the first place, and it, and it becomes fatal because they, what they're trying to do is apply some sort of conventional retail rationale to Amazon's strategy as it unfolds. And, and the problem with that is that Amazon is not really a retailer. They are a data innovation and technology company that happens to sell things. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them particularly dangerous. Um, they, They are incredibly adept at understanding data. And, and they are also incredibly adept at creating technology to remove friction from the retail experience. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. At one point, Terry Lundgren from Macy's, uh, he, was this, he was the CEO of Macy's, and um, he, he, was, he was being interviewed because Amazon was uh, on the threshold of selling more clothing in the United States than Macy's stores. Which, uh, which at the time occupied the number two position behind Walmart. And in sort of glibly, uh, Terry Lundgren said, um, oh, yeah, sure, you know, Amazon, Amazon can sell a lot of stuff, but, um, but you know what, they don't really understand the, the, the clothing market. You know, they're going to have problems with returns. <laughs> they're going to have problems with end of lines and seasonal clearances. And so he's thinking like a conventional retailer, right? Yeah. He's sort of saying, you know, they're going to experience all the problems a conventional retailer does. Meanwhile, at the same time, and I just found this contrast to be funny, I, at the same time that Terry Lundgren was making these remarks, Jeff Bezos was holding a covert meeting <laughs> in Seattle with uh, various individuals to talk about space travel, artificial intelligence, and <laughs> robotics. <laughs> so, so it just sort of shows you the two different mindsets. You know, Jeff Bezos is not a guy that's going to sit there and obsess over clearing out last year, last season's right. ladies' wear collection, right? Right. They, they look at these archaic problems of the retail industry, and they just look at them as speed bumps. And a good example is the the... You know, the retail industry spent the last 200 years looking at people standing in line at cash registers and said, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're totally cool with that. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't need to fix that. If anything, you know what, let's just put magazines at the front of the line so they have <laughs> so they can read. Yeah. Yeah. They have a National Enquirer to read while they wait. 
Jeff Bezos looked at that situation and his team looked at that situation and they said, well, we'll do away with the line. And they've created a store called Amazon Go where you can walk in, scan your phone, pick up what you want, leave. Mm-hmm. And it gets charged up to your Amazon Prime account. There's no cash register. There's no lining up. In fact, mm-hmm. there are very few people that work in the store. So this is this is the dichotomy in the mindsets between conventional retailers and a company like Amazon. Now, the question is, can Amazon be overcome? Mm-hmm. And I think... There are two two answers to that. In the short term, I think it's possible to thrive in the shadow of Amazon, but it requires that retailers become exponentially more artful about what they're doing. Um, they 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 have to. They absolutely must create experiences that are so remarkable and so highly differentiated that people go even when the product that they want is available on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. That they're prepared because the experience is so much better yeah. to go to uh, to go to a particular retailer. And there are examples of retailers that are that are fighting that fight and and, and winning. Um, in the long term the question is will somebody overcome Amazon? And I think it, I think the answer is yes. Uh, if if we're being honest about it, as powerful as Amazon is, they're really just digitized uh, catalog shopping. Yeah, right. It's like somebody took ten thousand Sears catalogs, <laughs> and just applied really really good web indexing to it. Yeah, and you know, and, and you're able to find what you want, and then they deliver. They deliver, uh, uh, you know, in, a, in an incredibly frictionless. Uh, way they make it easy to shop. They took the chaos out of out of online shopping. Yeah. Having said that, I think the company that eventually topples Amazon is going to be a company that redefines how we shop online. It won't just be someone that does what Amazon does, but does it better. Mm-hmm. Because Amazon's going to continue to do what Amazon does, but does but do it better. Yeah. Uh, it'll be someone that comes in and makes Amazon look look uh, antiquated by comparison <laughs> in the same way that Sears today looks antiquated <laughs> by, by Amazon. Yeah, for sure. Wow. There is a lot to think about. So, I mean, ultimately it comes down to creativity and willingness to be creative and take risks. And that is a huge mental mind shift for corporations of all types, I think, really. Um, They, as I think you were saying in the book, you know, they talk proudly about innovation, but their cultures don't reward innovation. And when, you know, I've heard for years, companies complain that, well, you know, we want graduates who have more better human skills, but who do they hire? They hire business grads and engineers. They don't hire the art grads and stuff. Yeah, that's right. Well, you're right. We have cultural issues around innovation. Innovation is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And, um, and and yet, I think when you get right down to it, the first mistake that a lot of companies make is they misdefine what innovation really is. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that uh, not disparagingly, uh, but, it, but it is in a practical sense just the way it is. I talk with executives who often say we're working on some incredibly innovative things, and when I when I probe them a little bit on it, what I often find is that they're not working on innovations at all. They're working on iterations of the same things that they already do now. Hmm. They're they're working on improving what they do now. That's not innovation. 
In, innovation, by definition, is creating something that has never existed before, or a, a wholly unique process or mm-hmm. design. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not just getting better at what you already do. So out of the gate, a lot of companies are saying we we want to foster innovation, but what they really want to do is foster iteration and, and continual improvement. There's nothing wrong with that, but let's not characterize it as innovation. Mm-hmm. The second piece is, you, you, you hit on it uh, just a moment ago, innovation by definition is creativity, and, and we have this assumption that everyone is creative. <laughs> We, you know, in the same way that, you know, we, we sort of say every kid, you know, has every kid can grow up to be whatever they want. We say, mm-hmm. well, every everybody's creative. Nobody has a license on good ideas. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you say that? <laughs> that's that's a lie. Right. That it, it's just fundamentally untrue. We are not all equally creative. In fact, uh, there's a study I talk about in the book where when they measured the creativity of of, uh, young children, they found that between the ages of three and five, about 98% of children are are capable of divergent thinking, Mm -hmm. meaning you you give them a paperclip and they'll show you a thousand different things that it can be Mm -hmm. uh, other than a paperclip. Um, By the time that same child or those same children have reached the age of 25, only 2% of them have retained the ability to think in a divergent way. Wow. Yeah. The system has literally beaten the Mm -hmm. creativity out of those kids. And so when you are working in any organization and you're sitting in a room of 100 people, you can say with, with relative certainty that two of them are capable of highly innovative thinking that could propel your company forward. The other 98% are just along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's the problem. When we, when we innovate in companies, you know, typically, uh, typically leadership, first of all, initiates the conversation and they call in other people who are tenured leaders with the company. Mm-hmm. They put, put 25 or 30 people in a room and they say, okay, we're, we're here to innovate. We're here to come up with the next great thing. Well, first of all, mathematically, <laughs> no, there's, there's no one in the room that's creative. I mean, ma- on a math- purely yeah. mathematical basis, there's less than one person in the room that's creative if they were all selected randomly. And secondly, because they're in leadership roles, it's probably even less than that because, <laughs> because there's an inverse correlation between creativity and leadership. Yeah. Leaders, leaders tend to be great leaders. They tend not to be great disruptors disruptors and great, yeah. great creators. So we are we are fundamentally right from the very beginning of the conversation. We are confounding ourselves as it applies to innovation. And yeah. if we really want innovative companies, we have to hire and we have to first of all hire innovative people. We have to test people for creativity, which you can do. We have to reward people directly for being disruptive and being innovative and being creative. And we have to provide them with a supportive, nurturing network that doesn't blame them for the failure yeah. of, of really cool ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you, when you put it all, all together, yeah, organizations can transform, but it's a, it, it's a big transformation. And it starts with the person at the top fostering that culture of innovation. And shareholders who are willing to accept it. Well, that's right, too. Yeah. And, and it's incumbent on leadership to when I say, you know, create a safe structure. It's also incumbent on leadership to, pr- to prove to shareholders and to boards that a safe 
a safe uh, incubator, if you will, or a safe laboratory for innovation has been created that that the company is going to pursue wickedly, uh, you know, risky and, and compelling ideas, but they're going to do so in a way that won't be reckless. Yeah. And, and that's important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Lots of food for thought here. Is there anything that you wish I had asked you that I have not? No, I think you covered all the bases. Okay. Well, I do highly recommend the book, and uh, I wish you the best of success with it. And I look forward to continuing to read your thoughts, Doug. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I used to blame university for taking the creativity out of me. And I've got to admit, it got even worse when I did my MBA. I got really good at writing analytical reports, but I couldn't write a good story to save my life. Fortunately, having kids helped me get back some of that creativity that we all start off with. It's a great thing about kids. When you're their mom, even if you're not a great storyteller, they think you are. The fact is, though, that the jobs of the future will increasingly go to the creatives in our world. Anything that isn't creative is going to be done by computers, by robots, by artificial intelligence. So if you want your organization to thrive, I'd argue that it's time to start taking a more serious look at hiring the graduates of arts programs, not just the business students, and put together teams that have a blend of creatives and data scientists. I actually discussed that in the second half of episode 105 with Jennifer Lee from Deloitte who talked about hiring what she called purple teams, because you'll almost never find both the wild creativity and the heavy-duty analytical skills in the same person. And if you didn't hear that, you might want to go back and check it out. It's at frankreactions.com forward slash 105. There's no question that we are at a time of tremendous change and upheaval in the retail world. Whether all of Doug's predictions happen, who knows? We'll see. But there's no question that if you're in the retail business, you need to be rethinking what you do and how you do it. Business as usual won't be usual for much longer. In fact, it'll be over. If you want to survive and thrive, your retail business model simply has to change. On that possibly scary note, I will sign off for this week. In our next episode, two weeks from today, there will be an interview with an auto dealership where you can have a manicure and pedicure done while your oil's being changed. Find out how this business leader has learned to listen to those wild ideas that come from those crazy millennials that so many people my age love to complain about. They really shouldn't. They should be listening to them and getting some really great, fresh ideas. Speaking of fresh ideas, I'd love to hear yours on who you think I should interview and what you'd like me to talk about with them. So please do drop me a line, Tema, T-E-M is in marketing, A, at frankreactions.com, or tweet at Tema Frank, or find me on LinkedIn or on the Facebook Frank Reactions page. I really, really value your feedback and your ideas and would love to incorporate them into the show. Thanks again for listening, and I will chat with you again in a couple of weeks. Bye.